airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Party in a hot pot for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian McRae in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees. Honey, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest served a seven-year apprenticeship honing his skills in his hometown of Newcastle before becoming a foundation member of the 2JJ on-air team and then on to become one of the biggest names in the Brisbane radio market in the 70s and 80s. The McGurvin radio journey only lasted 15 years, but what a ride it was. Alan McGurvin, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. It's uh, good to be with you. Hey, really looking forward to this one. Got a lot to cover. Let's go right back to the start. And uh, did your performance at school give any indication as to the career path that you might follow? For example, were you academic, any involvement in the drama, debating, or even running the student council? No, I did. I, uh, I was part of a theatre company uh, when, I was, when I was a kid. Um, I think uh, it's fair to say that I've always had an interest in uh, television and, and radio. Um, from from way back, and I, I'm one of the great greatest gifts. And I went through this with my grandson uh, on Saturday in Melbourne, uh, where it's just the hardest. Yeah, there's a book called "I Could Do Anything If I Only Knew What It Was," and uh, uh, he just at the moment, he's just turning twenty and he's stuck. But by the time I was at least probably in my early teens, I absolutely knew um, what industry I wanted to get into. Um, uh, the other great thing is I'm, I'm absolutely made uh, to end up being a radio personality because I'm an only child. So we, we spend all those years entertaining ourselves. And when you get to sit in the little room, uh, I fortunately had a couple of very, very good producers who, who also made it work. Uh, when you get in there, it's, um, it, it just seems to be made for an only child to, uh, and I know quite a few only child uh, radio personalities here in America who uh, say the same thing. It's just, it's just like a little gift. But the gift to me was I knew what I wanted to do. What I initially wanted to do, actually, strangely enough, was be a television cameraman. And um, so I was starting my last year at high school. I was always in the top. These, these are the baby boomer years. So, um, you know, you had eight classes of 40 people in each year. 
so, you know, there were just thousands of us little bastards. And uh, for some reason, I was always in the top class, and I could never quite work that one out. Um, but around that time, I was just turning 16, and a, a, a two buddies of mine, um, one both from school, actually, uh, got had got a job at 2KO, Newcastle, where I grew up, uh, as uh, panel operators. And uh, I had uh, been interviewed for a job there um, just a month before. And one of them rang me up and said, listen, I've just heard the chief engineer say another guy's leaving, another panel operator. He doesn't want to go through those interviews again. Remind him that you're in the top three. And I did. And I got a job at 2KO as a panel operator. And I got, got to watch some really, really good operators through the class. Uh, and I really understood it all. It just it was just made for me. And uh, there I was, 16, just turned 16. I got to watch uh, great operators like Gray Clark, who we only lost last year. He was a fabulous operator. Never a big personality, but what a great operator. And uh, Warwick Tease, uh, John Maloney. And um, we just, it was just a great year. And at the end of that year, um, suddenly I been panelling for a guy who read the news on NBN3 and I talked to him about becoming a television cameraman film editor. So I get a call from him saying, listen, there's a job here. Do you want to come over to television? So um, within 12 months, and I was still 16 years of age, I was there and I was learning to shoot 16 millimeter film and edit it, uh, which I did for a couple of years. So how did that transformation come about from behind the camera to behind the microphone? Shooting news and program it's kind of Groundhog Day after a while. It's They're all the same kind of stories. Uh, and for some reason, um, and I guess mm, a lot of people listening would know who Keith Graham was. Keith got Wesco together and um, he, um, he got that whole network together. Very, very good operator. And he was the PD of uh, 7HO in Hobart. Um, and his brother, Neville Graham, worked at NBN3. And he said, my brother's looking for a young guy to do drive on 7HO. Now, 7HO was modelled on, um, by this time I'm 19, 7HO was modelled on 3UZ, um, which probably at the time, 1967, was the best sounding radio station in Australia. Um, the general manager, Alan Brown, he was ex-3UZ and uh, the whole station just sounded great. They had the Pams of Dallas jingle package and the, uh, I just sounded great. Uh, Bob Cook, good old Bobby, who we only lost a couple of weeks ago. Bob Cook was doing nights. He was 20. Uh, I was doing drive. I was 19, but I'd never done radio. And and that showed. <laughs> so I lasted, they woke up to me. I lasted six months. Yeah, a rocky start. But uh, as you say, those sliding door moments were falling into place. And it was back to Newcastle and 2KO. Who got you back home? Uh, old Ron Gibson, who was the panel, uh, what was he, the PD of 2KO, which was the, the, the huge number one station in Newcastle. Um, I just happened to call him and say, mate, um, I'm looking to come back to Newcastle. I didn't tell him I'd been sacked. But... And uh, he, he said, yeah, well, you won't believe this. We, uh, we want someone to do nights. Uh, and he got, I'd know, I got to know him while I was a panel operator. And uh, well, bugger me, I, within a week, I'm, I'm on the air at 2KO Newcastle. Okay, so what can you tell us about that format of 2KO at the time? 2KO now, was the first radio station in Australia to play top 40 24 hours a day, uh, owned by the Lamb family, who also owned, owned 2UE. 
um, old Pat Barton did breakfast there for years and years. And he put the first top 40 charts together. Um, and so what a background. And, uh, you know, went, went straight in. Uh, Mike Jeffries, Malcolm T. Elliott in that first year were, were on to KO. And uh, uh, who else was there? Um, Phil Hunter. Um, John Maloney was still there. Now, Alan, there's no doubt that you had confidence in your ability to make some sort of mark in the broadcasting industry, but the same couldn't be said for your mother at the time. No. <laughs> well, you see, these, these are people. When I was, um, my, my parents were reasonably old when I was born, and my father had, had gone, you know, he was in the Air Force for the whole six years of World War II. He was a Scotsman, hence the McGurvin. Um, and, um, my mother was, and these, these are people who come through the depression and, um, uh, I, I used to say to her, look, I, I'd, um, you know, I'd like to get a job at maybe at, at, as a panel operator, or I really do want to be a, you know, work in television. And she said, look, and remember, I'm an only child. Right? She said, look, Alan, we love you. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying, but you know, uh, your father can get you a job, an apprenticeship as a dental technician. He worked at, at Royal Newcastle hospital. And, and, you know, you, you, you're just never going to work in television. That was the first motivational talk I ever had. Serious motivational talk. And, and within a month, there I was, a panel operator at 2KO, and the story goes from there. So two years at 2KO and another five at Crosstown Rival 2HD as part of their good guy format. Why the change of station in the same marketplace? Well, within a year at KO, they'd put, they'd, um, someone left. And they put me on a drive. I was doing drive and I was doing a huge rating Saturday night show called Party Time Requests. Um, massive audience. And that benchmarked me in the town, that and doing drive. And here I am. I'm still 20 years of age. Uh, I fell out. I had a massive falling out with the general manager of the station, with his attitude to me and a few of the other people at the station. So um, I'm pretty easy going. And this guy, I don't know, he just, he just didn't get it. And uh, uh, we had had words and i at that time i got to know art ryan uh art was doing drive as i recall and he calls me and again this has been the story of my life timing isn't everything it's the only thing so art called me up and he said listen brian layman's uh doing breakfast here and brian a really good operator and uh he uh, he's leaving to go to perth which i i think he came from perth and uh, he said, you, they'd be happy to, for you to come over and do breakfast. And I said, yeah, okay. So I went and met them. And, uh, and, and at that very week, I had this big falling out. Um, it's a whole separate issue. And then I, I just quit and uh, went over to do breakfast. I guess I was there for the best part of five years. Now, Alan, I know you're a big believer in the 10,000-hour rule, as outlined by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Outliners. What actually is the 10,000-hour rule? Uh, the, the book is about why people become successful for reasons you can't even imagine. One of the chapters relates to the 10,000-hour rule, where no matter what, no matter you can have a genius IQ, you can be enormously talented, no matter what, until you've done something for 10,000 hours, you don't become really, really, really good at it. And I have to say, in that five years at HD, doing breakfast and I, I was developing, developing the benchmark characters uh, that I went on to, to use at Double J. But by the time 
I'd finished those five years at HD and I was re- well and truly ready to leave Newcastle. Uh, suddenly one day, uh, again, I'd had enough. I thought, well, I could see personality radio returning. And that's what I've been waiting for because that whole era was, was stamped by 2SM with a seven-minute, seven-second talk time. So these poor bastards, except for breakfast and mornings, these poor bastards had seven seconds to say what they had to say out of the song and that's it, ad break, next song. But I knew personality radio really was coming back and I thought, this is Al, this is me. Sunday the 19th of January 1975, a bold initiative by the Whitlam government to woo the youth audience went on air when Holger Brockman introduced the Sydney marketplace to 2JJ. Now you were part of that very first roster with the opportunity again coming through a chance phone call. So who did the call up come from this time? From Holger Brockman, the Al, This new station's opening up. It's called Double J and 24 hour, 24 seven rock. Uh, Sydney, AM band, uh, they don't seem to be able to find anyone who can do breakfast. And they've just heard an air check of an American guy. Uh, and they said, this is the sort of guy we want in breakfast. He was number one in LA. I just forget who it was. Uh, maybe it was Charlie Tuna, uh, another only child. And um, he uh, he calls me. I said, Al, you, you just you know, get out of there. Get down here. You, you can do breakfast. You'll kill them. And sure enough, within a month, I, I was on the air at Double J, and uh, I did the first 12 months breakfast there. Uh, and and by, when I walked in that door, I'd done my 10,000 hours. That's, the, that's the, you know, the outcome of that story. I had paid my dues. I'd got my chops. I had done the 10,000 hours. And I hit, the, I hit the ground running, got a fabulous producer from day one called David Ives, uh, who was an ex-BBC, but he was a maniac, uh, found me some benchmark characters. Uh, I funded Sattler and Riley into writing a, uh, Chuck Chandra of the Space Patrol, which was pretty goddamn awful, but they thought it was funny. Um, and then I had the Pig of Steel as a benchmark character and a few others, including Lex Marinos, doing a, a fabulous, uh, uh, what was he? He was Mandrake, our... Colombo Plan Exchange Student Newsreader, and that was pretty goddamn funny as well. But I had a, a six-pack of those benchmark characters. And uh, in later years, and I, I didn't meet him for many years, in later years, um, Doug Mulray would tell people I was, uh, I was his role model for what he ended up doing on radio. And that association, of course, uh, does the full circle uh, towards the end of your career, but uh, we digress a little bit. Listen, question for you. Were there any rules or constraints that were placed on the jocks at Double J at the time when the station started? Oh, none at all. It's, uh, you could do absolutely anything you like, and, uh, and we did. Um, yeah, there were gut-wrenching, hilarious. Even The, the, the two founders, uh, three founders, Ted Robinson, uh, he's ex, he was ex-ABC television um, he was involved in getting Room to Move going with uh, uh, Chris Winter um, on, on ABC Radio 1. That was, and that was really the criteria for, for Double J. Uh, not at all, mate. No, I, they, just, they just left us alone and uh, there we were, mate. Just the, 
we'd walk up the hill from from William Street and go, and you, you were you were down in the we're down in the basement studios in the ABC building, the old ABC building there, down in those basement studios. They were an old old bomb shelters from World War Two, and uh, oh, we let a few bombs off down there. And uh, no, not a word. All I ever got was positive feedback, which of course doesn't happen in uh, doesn't happen in commercial radio. The, invariably, all you're getting is. Uh, uh, complaints um, and uh, well-meaning program directors. Now, you did mention the influence of the Whitlam government in the formation of Double J. So what effect did the famous November 11 dismissal have on the station at the time and also into the short term? Well, that was, um, that was the reason I left, actually, because um, we were really firing. We're absolutely bulletproof. Um, the show worked. It was funny. Um, I had segued through three producers. Each one of them had their own style. They really all contributed. Uh, Graham Wyatt, uh, who these days lives up on Mount something in Tasmania. David Ives initially, and Tony Paulson was my last producer. He's X2SM, as many of the guys were there. Um, 9-11 meant Whitlam was gone. Now Whitlam created Double J. At that time, and this, this would be January of 76, so we'd been on the air for one year. Uh, at that time, Malcolm Fraser took over, and just for spite, we were all set up to roll out nationally. That's in every cap city in Newcastle. We were all set up. Um, frequencies were allocated, AM band, of course. Frequencies allocated, transmitters allocated, and uh, Malcolm Fraser stopped the rollout. And I remember walking down the hill, Forbes Street, with Tony Paulson and saying, this is my seventh year of doing breakfast. And you're either an owl or a fowl. I never really got used to getting up early. Don't ask me. I never really did. I mean, I got in there and I did it. And I, was, I, I seemed to work better in the morning. But I went, Jesus. And we're not, half of Sydney couldn't hear us. We were, were coming off this Radio 2 transmitter out at Liverpool. So a lot of the eastern suburbs north, and North Shore couldn't could hardly hear double james and they of course are our, our, our ideal audience so that's 76 the january that station did not roll out as a network till 88 mm-hmm. what a lead what a lag time isn't that isn't that sad so we get into the office um which was an amazing place an amazing place and the phone's ringing and uh tony says i'll this is jeff mullins from 4ip he wants to talk to you this is that very morning and, uh, and I knew Jeff. And he said, Al, I've, I've been to Sydney last couple of days listening to the show. He said, it's great. I said, I oh, know. <laughs> I used to be conceited, but now I'm perfect. And um, he, uh, he said, look, uh, you want to have lunch? And I said, sure. Um, so that was a Friday. And I went to lunch with him. I, I, I actually ended up getting on a flight with him at the end of that day and go to Brisbane with him. And I got back on the Monday. He said, the reason I'm uh, calling you is um, we've got a pretty big star called uh, Wayne Roberts, who does mornings, 9 to 12. Uh, he's leaving to go to 2UW to do breakfast. And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, how would you feel about coming to Brisbane? I said, uh, are you paying for lunch? And uh, 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 Frank Moore, the owner of the station, was sitting out at the International lounge he's going to america to get his jingle package or something and he said no, i'll take you to meet frank moore and uh, 
So I went out there and Frank said, well, all we can pay you is 30 grand a year. Um, when I was only on 15 at Double J. I mean, <laughs> this is 1976 after all. And um, uh, yeah, so two weeks later, I started on 4IP and I did two, nearly two, three-year contracts. Ooh, it's, here, it's cold outside, but warm in here. Till the weather's clear, you can stay in here. Poor IP was, of course, at the top of its game with names such as McGurvin, Hillier, Doyle, Turner, Gooch, Driscoll, etc., which wasn't too bad a lineup. So, how much fun was it working at the station at the time? Oh, yeah, it was good. Um, yeah, it was good. And um, we had Graham Roberts doing Robbo doing breakfast. Um, and the station, so remember, I'm starting in about February. Again, all these things always seem to occur around my birthday. So I think that's, energy-wise, it seems to be the peak of your year. But um, I moved in there just on my birthday. I think I was 28. Um, Robbo was doing breakfast, not to be confused with, it's Graham Roberts. Uh, and he stayed there through to 79, I think, uh, at which time... Uh, no, 78, yeah. And there was me. Lee Cornell was doing afternoons. Kev Hillier was doing uh, drive. Ray McGregor doing nights. And uh, I remember going to Paul, and Paul J. Turner was there so doing something. Um, I think he might have been the floater here. Um, Paul J. And, and him and Hillier, two of the best music jocks I've ever heard in my life. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not saying my panel work was poor, but uh, they always gave me a panel operator. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, that was a great lineup and it was good. And we all got on well. We were all buddies. There was no, um, you know, no one was getting stabbed in the back. Management was average, very average, but it didn't matter. The talent carried the station. Righto, will you announce us? As a reward for your abject grovelling, I'm sending you all to the islands this Friday. That's right, the islands this Friday. Now, Supreme, you got your checklist. Where's your suntan oil? Oh, bit. Robbo, grass, good? Yeah, mate, got it. Good, okay. Hillier. Now, watch. Hillier put down that secretary. You don't know what band she's been with. Fowler, Fowler, stop licking my boots, will you? Where's Pike? He's in the dunny. In the dunny. Now, McGurvin, now you're... McGurvin? Oh, he's drunk again. After months of abject grovelling, the four IP jocks have finally conned their way to the islands this Friday. But the question remains trembling upon their pursed little lips. Hey, Chief, what about a hint? What islands? Oh, yeah, where are we going? Oh, well, all right. Uh, can all you fellas swim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah what about treading quicksand? Oh, oh, oh. Can I help you? Good, uh, good morning. Who am I talking to there? Mr. Ireland. Fiona Island, is it? That's right. Fiona, I've got a big surprise for you. You'd never guess who this is. Oh, no! It's, it's Bert Newton from the Don Lane Show. Isn't that a wonderful? We're recording the wheel segment right now, Fiona. Who put me in for it? I think, I'm, I'm not sure Okay, myself. Alan, you had a number of successful segments in your format, but probably none more popular than the good old gotcha calls. How did the voices develop and which ones did you have the most success with? The most recalled is the one where I tell this guy he's, um, he's got an Alfa Romeo and it's the panel shop and it's fallen off the hoist. Um, and uh, I somehow that across time, and that, that call would have been 1980. It wasn't yesterday. Uh, uh, that, that's probably the most recalled. 
I, I did um, a few character voices. I did Malcolm Fraser. I did um, Bert Newton. I did, uh, in fact, old Bert rang me up one day in about 80, 81. He was on 3UZ doing mornings and someone had sent him a copy of me doing a gotcha call as Bert. And he played it on the air. And so I get this call, which my producer says, put this to air. It's Bert Newton on 3UZ. And he comes, I believe you do a very good impersonation of the Allen. And I said, not as good as you, Bert. I saw a thing on Facebook the other day and it said, it said, what's the one thing you'd like to bring back to Melbourne? And I wrote, Bert. Hey, good call. Speaking of calls, December 12, Got Your Calls got a wake-up call in the most tragic of circumstances with Mel Gregg and Michael Christian's call to the London Hospital. Now, you were well out of the game by that stage, but what were your initial thoughts when you heard that news? Oh, I had no doubt that those calls, that I really, well, my initial thoughts were feeling so sorry for those, those two people. I don't know where their careers went after that but I actually left a message for them but I felt so sorry for those two people because they were hung out to dry and I had absolutely no doubt that there was never any screening of those calls by management which management claimed they did that they listened to all those calls before they went to it uh-uh that just didn't happen you know so no that, that was a shame and uh, uh, they should be ashamed of, of the way those kids were treated now, another unique feature of the McGurvin time at 4IP were your Christmas Day broadcasts from Jerusalem. Now, who came up with that idea, and how would you describe that unique experience? Well, actually, I did two of them. I did um, one in the first, the first year we were there. I did one in 76, and I did one in 78. They flew us to Jerusalem both times. With The uh, first time, my producer was John Miller. Um, second time was Tony Urquhart, and I'm, I'm afraid we've lost both those boys in the meantime. Um, Tony was was a genius. Uh, he he uh, was a great a great guy, a wonderful human being, and a very very clever man. Very quick, um, and uh, he came with me. It was great. It, it we did um, went to air. I think it went to air by then. The second time, two SM had brought us out, so it went to air through the whole two SM network to to an X to the da da da. Jerusalem was fantastic, and, and you, can you imagine expe the experience of it? Just over we go. We go through Tehran. Um, we get on a LL 707 to go to Tel Aviv to do the Christmas morning thing, three hours. And off, just as we're coming in over Cyprus, there's two F4 Phantoms off our wingtips with a Star of David on them. It's just nothing could have prepared me for Israel. What a fantastic country. And uh, what, what an experience that's it really was. Yeah, I can only imagine. Hey, listen, we can't speak of an Alan McGurvin time at 4IP without referring to the ultimate Siki promotion. Can you run us through how that came about and how it ended up? Well, uh, to answer the first question, whose idea was uh, Israel both times was Frank Moore, the owner of the station, a very religious man. Uh, Frank's just early 90s now. He's just a wonderful man. I see him at the Rats Lunch here in Brisbane regularly. Um, he, he came up with that, and um, the ultimate Siki was uh, the idea of the then general manager, who was an SM guy called Ken Armour. Uh, that was actually Ken's idea, and um, it was it won Austra Australian Radio Promotion of the Year in 
and so it should. How are you feeling, Mr. McGregor? I'm not well, Mercy. Well, we'll have to spoon food you. Spoon food me. Spoon feed. We're only halfway through the flight. One vital statistic, the hypochondriacs put away as much beer in the first two hours as a regular flight from Sydney to London and back. A fabulous concept. So we filled a 747 with uh, people who had to bring a note with them from their boss. I think they, all, they paid $100, which was a bit of money in 1980. And uh, we went around the state, flew around the state, went up to the top, came over Weeper, um, and uh, then flew, we flew down the Gold Coast. Uh, they went down the beach at the Gold Coast at 500 feet. Uh, and I was sitting up in the cockpit. And that was another great experience. And uh, yeah, it was one of the great, and we were at that time going through uh, the umbrella promotion of, of the whole thing was called Share Queensland with a Friend, uh, which again, I believe Ken Armour came up with that one. So you've got to give him points for that. Um, and Share Queensland with a Friend, you, you write into me and you say, hey, my friend lives in Perth. I think they deserve to, to come and visit the real world. And uh, so every day we'd give away um, a TAA return ticket somewhere in Australia and uh, share Queensland with a friend. One of the great Australian radio promotions. You mentioned 2SM before. Now, of course, 2SM had more than just a passing interest in 4IP. In fact, it became an acquisition. Yes, yeah. Um, yes, Frank Moore stopped me in the, co- in the, in the corridor uh, and he said, well, Al, um, I think you're okay. I see you've got, just trying to think of the timeline, I see you've got about a year to run on your contract but I've, I've, I should tell you, um, I've just sold the station to 2SM. And literally, as of midday tomorrow, I'm, I'm out of a job. And, uh, uh, and I said, well, that's a, and this guy was a genius. I mean, talk about an entrepreneur. And, you know, that's the most overused word in the world. Nobody, and you ask anybody, what does it mean? What does the word entrepreneur mean? Do you, do you know? Mm. It means builder. Mm-hmm. So he was a builder. He, he took this radio station from a, a little crappy AM or a, Longreach, uh, built the colour radio network and then acquired 4IP when it was Ipswich and, and managed to get the transmitters stuck out in the bay on St. Helena Island. So not only did we boom into Brisbane, but we had a cloverleaf pattern that, that, that went Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast. So I had a massive audience in, um, in those places as well, massive audience. Um, that's the, and that station sounded so good. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked there. What were you asking me? That's okay. Two uh, SM, an acquisition. Yeah, yeah. Well, they that was they um, that was a great idea, uh, and they they paid top dollar for it. Within, uh, and so they bought up uh, the new PD. Uh, within about six months, everybody, most everybody, was gone except me and Kevin Hillier. They they took us from around about number one to number four within six months. They bought up a whole bunch of the PD, came up from 2NX, and he bought his boys to do breakfast, uh, and he bought some other people to do other shifts on the air. Robbo went across the road to 4BC. Ray McGregor went to 4BK. Uh, Paul went to 4KQ, I think. Paul J. Turner. Uh, Anyway, it was only Robbo and I. I I remained on. and And the show was starting to work so well. Uh, my show and Kevin, Kevin sounded great in breakfast. You know, he just, I just, I, I heard an air check of him the other day and I'd forgotten how good he was. Um, but they, uh, yeah, the, uh, a perfectly, a perfectly good, you know, it's the old, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. They, 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 all they had to do was leave it alone. 
Uh, I'm, I'm even amazed they didn't change the call sign. Uh, but everything they did was wrong. And uh, then the general manager called me in and he said, Al, there's a new guy coming in from 2SM. This is Ken Armour, as I mentioned before. Um, they're putting their GM, I'm gone. Uh, he said, I noticed in February your contract, your three-year contract's up. And I said, yeah, can you imagine? Because uh, the PD um, hated everything I did. And um, he said, listen, why don't we just sign you for another three years? And I went, okay. So we did. And his secretary, Joni, uh, called me a couple of weeks later. She said, you won't believe this. Gary's just come in and said, I want to see McGurvin's contract. I believe it's expiring and I'm not going to renew him. She said, oh, gee, I, I think he's just signed for, for another three years. <laughs> so based on that, I, I hung around. I, I left six, six months early. I did two and a half years of that. And and that's when I, that's when I really kicked. So those those years would have been um, 79, 80, 81. So the whole decade I only did. So I was talking to those wonderful guys, my 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 great friends at KQ, who now have moved to BC. Laurel, Gary, Mark. We're at a <laughs> we're at a farewell for Jennifer Gould uh, a couple of about a year ago. She's a promotions girl there for thirty years for KQ, and. Laurel brings Gary over. These guys, amazing. And she said, tell him. And I said, what? She said to Gary, tell him. Gary said, you're the reason I got into radio. And I said, well, mate, no one. I was your role model. I, someone else says that. <laughs> I said, no wonder you've done so well. Their whole career, that they're, they are now um, over 15 years in. And I said, you guys realize that's uh, uh, just on KQ. They are 15 years in doing that show. My whole radio career was 15 years. That was it. And my whole decade, the only full decade I did was the 70s, which was a very interesting decade to be in radio. Now, Alan, 4IP wasn't your last appearance on the Brisbane Airwaves. There was, of course, a short stint at 4BK. What was the story behind that appointment? Wayne Roberts had returned from 2UW. It didn't quite work out for him in Sydney. There was, it wasn't really a Sydney act. But he was a huge star in Brisbane. He was enormous. He came back and David Greenwood got him into doing breakfast at 4BK. Uh, and they had a fabulous lineup. They had uh, Jeff Sunderland doing mornings, Ray, Ray, uh, David Kidd and Ray Ron driving nights. Oh, uh, great sounding station. Ronnie Saywell, who we just lost two weeks ago. Ronnie programmed the music and a wonderful music mix. And um, so... I actually resigned one morning and Ken Armour kept saying to me, why don't we just tear up this contract, mate? Why don't we just do this on a handshake? And I said, no, no, Ken, I like it here. If you don't get me, pay me out. I walked out reception and I just quit and I just signed off because Keith Fowler, the voice plan, said to me, are you making so much money from, you know, do you want to keep doing radio? And I think I'd done it all. Now, you've got to remember that this is one month after I was crowned Australian Radio Personality of the Year. So this is the middle of 81, one month. And uh, I had this motivational talk from the general manager only two weeks after that. I, I didn't, I wasn't there to get the award. I was in Hong Kong on holidays. But uh, he said, look, I, I just don't get your act on air, Al. It's a lifestyle thing, isn't it? And I said, no, I think that's what radio is, Ken. Yeah, it's a lifestyle thing. 
And this day, I just kind of, again, like 2KO, I'd had enough. And uh, I, I walked in, had the contract. My, my lawyer just gave him a termination thing, signed off. Our PD was then, uh, he was a great little guy, uh, Hugh Drury. Uh, he had another name on here, but lovely guy. And I just went in and said, mate, can you, uh, for the previous year, by the way, I had kicked. And instead of starting at nine, they'd started me at eight. So obviously the show was going somewhere. Um, so I said, Hugh, can you just sit in for me from 10.30? I'm going to the pub. He said, why is that? I said, I quit. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, mate. So uh, I've got MacArthur Park on at the moment. <laughs> Try to get in there in the next five. Uh, goodbye and good luck. And, um, and there's a note at reception from Graham Kemp, who was the just become the general manager for VK. And he said, Al, congratulations. I was at the awards uh, a couple of Saturdays ago in Melbourne and fantastic. The whole room took off and they played your gotcha call about the way the guy's car falling off the hoist. How about that? Uh, he said, I'd like to buy you lunch. Congratulate you. And again, this, remember, this is the same day I quit. So I go down. He takes me to my favorite restaurant in uh, Queen Street. And again, just like Double J, he said, Al, the real reason <laughs> I've got you here is Wayne Roberts is leaving breakfast. He's going to start a real estate agency up the Sunshine Coast. How would you feel about coming over and doing breakfast at VK? I can pay you 80 grand a year. That's in 81. That was, that was pretty good money. And I said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yep, how about that? Now, talk about, see, this timing seems to follow me around, mate. And being in the right place at the right time. Speaking of timing and sliding door moments, tell us about a trip to the US in the late 80s and how it changed the course of your working life. The Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation hired me and uh, Neil Timmons, their marketing manager, to go to America and do a 12-city trip to, uh, it was promoting Queensland, this is the QTTC, Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation. And guess who happened to be the chairman, that, the, the aforementioned Frank Moore, my old mentor. And they said, we need a sort of broadcasting guy to chat with the number one radio stations in each of these markets. And that was really interesting to be able to go to those stations and see those people. I, you know, I got, I got to meet some big, big stars. And it's funny how the bigger the star is, the nicer the person they are. And... Um, so I did this, and I, I happened to hear some of these on hold things. I, and I call. I remember calling an airline, and, and there was this message going on about you know, and da 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 da. da. And I said to uh, Neil, "This is a great idea. It doesn't really exist in Australia." So um, within a couple of years, I'd started the, uh, the messages on hold uh, IVR business. So we're thirty-two years in now. Um, that's that's where we got the, I've sold the license in five countries. Qantas are now a 32-year client, and uh, we've got hundreds of big corporates, um, and I've sold the license in New Zealand, UK, Asia. Um, but it's been, it's like, that's what I've been doing. Uh, it's like a, a gift that keeps on giving. So it's been great. Now, Alan, most people would say, once you have the radio bug, you never lose it, yet you had 15 intense, successful years, then simply walked away. So did you lose the passion for broadcasting? Did the next right opportunity never eventuate? Or did other opportunities suddenly take priority? Yeah, I think that last comment is the one. Uh, and, and, but do remember that I did go back after seven years. I did go back and did six months at Triple M, 
this is another opportunity down the track where Triple M calls me and says, uh, B105's coming on the air. We've got a new FM in the market. These guys had been on the air for about five years and they were pulling a 40 share. They were the only FM in town in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, they were pulling a 40 share and they realized they needed a personality on breakfast. And the research was telling them they would like to hear Alan McGovern back on the air again after seven years, which, uh, which I did. So it sounds like a McGurvin-type gig. Why did it only last six months? For me, I'd got this business started and it was pretty much what I was focused on. But it was kind of living proof to me that you can't go back. And I know the number one, um, the again, very similar to the 2SM experience with group programmers. I know the group programmer uh, at, at Triple M at the time uh, just didn't like me, didn't like what I was doing. Um, and uh, after six months, one, one, one day, they, the GM uh, came to me and said, uh, look, mate, I, I don't know what's going on with these guys. I had lunch with uh, John Garnsey yesterday. He was the number one advertising man in town. And he said to me, he said, I know you guys have been struggling a bit with McGurvin, but stick with him. The whole town's talking about him. And George said, oh, yeah, thank you for that. The next day, the group PD arrived, handed me a check for 100 grand and said, I've got bad news for you. And I said, what's the bad news? <laughs> and I just didn't care. I, you know, I said, no, nah, that's fine. That's fine. It's only radio. I'm Okay, Alan, I have 12 questions in front of me that we ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I can't remember, mate. I, um, I think I heard it while, while I was on air. And it's like I also happened with Elvis. Uh, I think I was about to start on air that day and uh, we got the news. And they sent, and I think Kev Hillier went out in the street with a portable and got the reactions from all these people going to work who, who didn't know. And it was, it was incredible. It was fabulous radio. Can you recall the last concert ticket you paid for? Oh, no, I <laughs> can't remember. <laughs> I don't believe I ever did. Um, I ever did. And, of course, we do a lot of work for venues, uh, la large venues like that. So, no, I, <laughs> no, I can't remember. Not the first person in your position to give that answer, let me tell you. Okay, the concert act that you regret never seeing. Queen. Absolutely. I'm so sorry I never saw Queen. Um, and I got, I love that movie. It's a great love that movie. Absolutely. What about that word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Yeah, I was trying to think about that one. There is one word, and it's actually the word I had the most trouble pronouncing when I do voiceovers. Um, and I can't remember the word. <laughs> like it's, you know, you get to my age, mate, like there's two things I can't remember. is people's names and... Uh, I've forgotten the other one. Now, I'm not sure we're going to be short on material with this one, but uh, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? I played a Monty Python track uh, once, and that was just at 4IP, and uh, that was probably just a few months before I left, and um, I didn't realise it had the magic word in it. It was the parrot sketch from Monty Python, and the word comes up a few times, and I, I went, oh, shit. 
So at a certain point in it, I started some song with a long intro and segued it in and closed the fader. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Oh, Sherbert, I'd have to say, mate. I, I mean, I, I knew both the, the, all the boys very, very well. Um, Skyhooks, we, we, got them, we got them started. We got to say at Double J because uh, 2SM refused to play a lot of Australian songs. And, uh, yeah, they, uh, um, their songs were good. They, uh, I don't know, I just, I just thought they were a great band. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? The Beatles, yeah. I just love, love Lennon McCartney. And it's hard to believe the body of work. You know, you, you, you still, I was watching them do uh, like a 1967 song the other day, probably from Rubber Soul in my life you know that wonderful song there are places i remember and i just uh yeah lennon mccartney no one's written as many hit songs as those boys alan the most treasured piece of memorabilia that you have from those early radio days oh i'd I'd say it's the bin that we used to carry up the hill that contained the albums and stuff and i i still got it i I bought it to the we still have a, a double j reunion every year around january and I took it down to the 40th. Uh, I had lunch with Mulray that day, actually. And um, I took the bin down, and, and it just says Double J Rock, and there's the name of my three producers on it, and the top two are crossed out. Yeah, yeah. How about the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Oh, good question. Um, good question, mate. Probably Elvis's death, I think. Ever a moment when someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Oh, Gee, uh, look, uh, of all people, and I, I would have done hundreds of personality interviews, and, and again, it, it, the bigger the star they were, the nicer they were, the nicer, nicest human beings. It was probably, of all people, that wonderful old character actor who did horror movies, Vincent Price. Uh, I, I, Norman Vincent Peale, too, he came in one day, and I, I handed him a piece about the Emerson piece about um, this is to have succeeded. Mm-hmm to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people, etc. And uh, he came in and I gave him that. And in his next book, he published it. Uh, he said this, uh, I, I met Alan McGovern in Brisbane and he, he, and I handed it to him and he read it on air. And he said, you know, you, you know, Mr. McGovern, even we need motivating sometimes. Yeah, good stuff. And those voices are coming back too. I can notice there, Alan. Hey, listen, best words of advice from a program manager, or in your case, best words of advice from a program manager that you actually took any notice of? Well, the best words I ever heard come out of most program managers' mouths were, I'm leaving the station. Uh, Your average program manager, there's a couple of geniuses out there, really are out there. But uh, I, I, I made a phone call to the CEO of a certain network and uh, told him why we'd gone from number one to number four, and the particular program director at that station was gone two weeks later. Uh, all the CEOs said to me was, thank you for telling me that, Alan McGovern, because he was a bit mystified as to why we were. But but no, the yeah, the best w- words of advice. See, they're, they're, a, a PD invariably is like, is like the eunuch in the harem. They know what's going on, they know where it's going on, but they can't do it themselves. <laughs> Two albums you'd consider the soundtrack of your teenage years? Uh, oh, probably, probably the first, the first Beatles album. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I just started work at 16. And yeah, I don't know, mate. I, uh, the really funny thing about me was, all those years, I didn't even have a record player at home. And Hugh Drury was our PD 
used to say to people, Jesus, I love that Alan McGurvin. He, I just give him the songs and he plays them. What I did was after most gotcha calls is play a tie-in song, a song that tied into the call and made it all work so much better. And finally, Alan, can you give me your very best ground floor? <laughs> ground floor. And suddenly thousands of people look up and say, that's where I've heard that voice before. <laughs> that man in the lift. Hey, Alan, as we said at the start, a 15-year journey, but what a ride it was. Hey, it's been great to catch up, listen to all the old stories, and, of course, reminisce about McGurvin's significant place in broadcasting. Again, thanks for your time. Well, thank you, mate. And Paul, I, I appreciate it. And well done with the... Uh the show I, I've, I've heard a couple and uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll catch up with you when, when I'm in, in Melbourne Alan McGurvin on Pilots of the Airwaves